welcome to episode number seven of The Thermal. I'm your host, Harry Tenkate. In this episode of The Thermal, we take a look at weather forecasting and how to figure out that perfect 500 kilometer day. The good news is that it no longer requires a crystal ball. First up, Matthew Scudder, the man behind SkySight, the fantastic weather app for glider pilots. He'll tell us the story behind this app that has become indispensable for many pilots. We also speak with Andrew Blum, the author of The Weather Machine, a journey inside the weather forecast. We talk about the art of weather forecasting and where we are today. And on Gliding Club Confidential, we go to the Netherlands and the Dalen Gliding Club. Simon van den Ankel, or Flying Simon as he's known to some, will tell us all about his club. We will also speak to a pilot about a mystery glider that was hiding in plain sight, pun intended, at his local gliding club. What is it and where did it come from? That and a whole lot more on episode number seven of the Thermal Podcast. Predicting the weather has evolved dramatically over the last few years, giving glider pilots far greater insight into the soaring conditions in their area. Now, before even starting the drive to the gliding club, pilots not only know what kind of soaring day it will be, but also what kind of task they can expect to fly. Over the years, glider pilots have become familiar with weather applications like Dr. Jack and XC Skies. Many pilots have also become their own weather forecasters by using various public forecasts and interpolating the information for their area. Australian glider pilot Matthew Scudder has gone one step further. Matthew is a very experienced contest glider pilot who has had a number of remarkable flights back in Australia. And in 2015, he was the junior world gliding champion. Matthew's gliding accomplishments don't end there. He has built the SkySight weather application designed specifically for soaring pilots, and it has very quickly turned into the highly successful go-to site for glider pilots around the world. I've reached Matthew Scudder in London, England. Hello, Matthew, and, and welcome to The Thermal. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Now, now, many of us have wished for better forecasting tools over the years, but you've actually been able to build your own. How did you do it? Talk me through the process. How did I build the weather website? Yeah. Um, it started for myself, actually, um, firstly, for wanting better forecasts for the Junior World Championships in Australia, um, and also so I could have a bit more insider information about what the weather was going to be like on the weekend so I could haggle my colleagues to get on or off uh, on call duty for the weekend. But, but how did you figure this out? Most people don't have the tools to figure this out. Um, well, I started off um, just doing my own forecasting, reading books, and then later I discovered a RASP from Dr. Jack, and I even set up a few RASPs in Australia, which I still maintain to this day. And it all kind of snowballed from there. Um, I used to be a software engineer, first working for a startup, then a company called Blackboard, and then working for Google doing software engineering. Um, and at least my perspective is modern meteorology is much um, more applied computer science rather than um, uh, derivative uh, physical sciences. Um, so that's where I brought my experience in um, from engineering large computer setups and um, operating things at scale towards weather forecasting. So is that part of the secret to this whole thing, having the, the massive computer power behind you that we have nowadays? Yeah, well, I'd say the key differentiation um, in how we do things is that uh, we use cloud computing at uh, enormous scale, um, which lets us achieve forecasts that I think wouldn't be possible with conventional setups. It's just not affordable to buy a um, million dollars worth of computer equipment and stick it in a rack and then do an hour's forecasting with it a day. 
Um, with the cloud, uh, with cloud computing, I can run forecasts on a thousand servers for a couple of hours and then turn them off and stop paying for them. And the cost of doing that is less than the electricity cost if I was to do that in Australia. Wow. What sets SkySight apart from some of the other weather applications we've got out there? Specifically, how does it differentiate itself? Um, well, I like to think the biggest differentiation is it's actually still under active development. Um, my reason for starting initially was I got the feeling that um, technology had advanced, um, but uh, other products had just been left stagnant. Um, there wasn't any active development going to keep on with um, the state of the art that was continually improving. Um, so I'd say that's that's the key differentiator. And from that, uh, I think we've built a really nice interactive user interface that utilizes uh, the power of your computer um, to deliver a really nice slippy map and uh, interactive functionality to give you all different ways to slice and dice the weather. Uh, and that enormous computer power we talked about lets us deliver quite accurate forecasts um, using the full resources of what's available today. Now, you managed the, the British junior team last year, the, the Worlds. How did using SkySight play into their victories? How did that help? Uh, the biggest thing for us um, was uh, overlaying their position on top of the weather map. Um, so we had that set up on the ground so we could see where they were in relation to the forecast. That was a real key differentiation, I think, that helped us succeed at the Junior Worlds. But of course, having access to the, um, or so there wasn't any weather information, say, that uh, we had just for us or anything like that. Um, but having access to those forecasts um, and knowing all how it worked certainly was some advantage, yeah. So you're doing that in real time and were you able to then communicate with them? Yep, that's that's the role of the team captain basically is to try and steer the gliders around the sky. Um, and we were able to do that in relation to both the forecast, the satellite picture and the rain radar, which on a n number of days was really critical in the worlds in Hungary. Hmm. Hmm. So how do you, how do you see SkySight evolving uh, in the in the next couple of years? How more precise is it going to get? Um, well, the biggest recent evolution uh, is we've partnered with the Deutsche Wetterdienst, which is the German weather agency. Um, they have a product called TopTherm and PCMet, uh, which is basically a German-only product, but Germans are the majority of glider pilots. Um, and that's uh, quite a legacy product now, and they've partnered with us to develop the next generation of their product. And as part of that, we've now got access to all of their weather models as well. Uh, so we're utilizing their weather models uh, for some purposes now and our weather models for other purposes. So they've got uh, the capacity to update their weather model every three hours and they're using very recent data when they're doing that. Uh, so if uh, you look at SkySight now, at least within Europe, you're able to select whether you'd like uh, our weather model, which updates a couple of times a day, depending on what time of day it is, uh, or their weather model, which updates every three hours. So that's, that's one of the biggest areas of um, improvement in weather forecasting at the moment is the focus on the real short term, uh, getting those latest observations and getting a new weather forecast out uh, very quickly. Uh, people call it now casting. And we've now got access to that built into SkySight as well as our weather model. So our weather model, of course, has different advantages. It's um, much more detailed than you'll get anyway, even than from nation state models like other models available at DWD. So it really resolves wave and convergences and subtle terrain effects a lot better. So I, I find this fascinating. So you've been able to use existing resources that are out there and you've been able to bring them all together into your app, SkySight which is then able to use all this tremendous computer power out there to, to work the system. It, it, it sounds ingenious the way you went about it. 
Yeah, well, that's the idea to try and um, use the best of what's available and make up the shortfall uh, ourselves where it's not otherwise available. Hmm. Now, do you see other applications for this? I mean, it's great for soaring pilots, but what about, uh, I don't know, sailboat racing? Um, sailboat racing, uh, I'm probably not going to dabble in just because there's a really strong competitor already there. Mm -hmm. um, and I've had a good close look at what they offer and realized, yeah, these guys are pretty good. I don't want to mess, mess around there. Um, but general aviation is an area I'm actively targeting. So we're going to have a product coming out next year, which again leverages that partnership with the Deutsche Wetterdienst to uh, offer a global, um, likely free uh, weather forecast for general aviation pilots uh, with a lot of the functionality from SkySight as well. So things like route planning um, and all better adapted to power pilots. You can put in your um, VFR waypoints and things like that. And also adapted, hopefully, for IFR pilots as well with uh, charts for things like icing and so on. Uh, I'm not quite sure where that product's going to go long term, so I'm going to make it free initially, and then we'll we'll see where the interest is and pivot it around from there. So I gather this is now a full-time job for you? Yeah, I've been working on this full-time for about three years now. And I gather with the, the number of subscriptions you have that this is also, you're, you're, you're able to make a decent living out of this. Uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. And uh, I also have a couple of other people working with me as well now. Wow, oh, fantastic. Do, do you do you ever look back at this process and, uh, you, you know, are you surprised that you've gotten so far so quickly? Um, well, when I left Google, I wasn't sure if I'd be finding myself back there in a couple of years' time or not. Mm -hmm. um, but things grew quite quickly, particularly last year um, when we really cracked the European market and uh, things have grown very rapidly from there. So what's the rough number of uh, subscribers that you've been, been able to uh, get? Uh, I'd rather not say the rough number, but I can tell you I think we're the second biggest uh, gliding weather forecaster, uh, at least within sailplanes now. And who's the first? I'll, let, I'll have to let you guess that, I'm afraid. <laughs> okay. So other than uh, coming to... Uh, terms of figuring out all the, the weather forecasting stuff and turning SkySight into this great tool. You're a competition glider pilot. You've got all sorts of stuff under your belt. Talk to me a little bit about what's happening on that front, on your own flying front. Um, well, I did a lot of time building myself up towards the Junior Worlds in Narromine and had a very successful result. And after right, that, I you were the Junior World Champion. That's right, in 2015 in Australia. But after that, I've kind of taken a little bit of a break. Um, and it was just last year that I sort of got back into it. So I flew the worlds in Poland and also in the Czech Republic and came fourth in the senior worlds in the Czech Republic. Mm -hmm. And now I'm starting to really get back into it. So next year I have a new glider arriving. I've ordered a Dyna 2 with an FES mm -hmm. and I'm really hoping to hit it hard next year. So I've got a full calendar of competitions, including I hope both world championships and yeah, hoping to get back on the horse again. Now, but you're in London right now and I understand you're off to Namibia later this year as well to do some flying down there? Yeah, so my short-term calendar is uh, London until December, and then in December I'm in Namibia, and then I'm in New Zealand from January until March. Um, but that's not strictly gliding related. It's um, My partner has a internship down there, so we're going down for uh, three months while she does that, but I'll definitely be making the, boat, the most of the local gliding weather while I'm there. That sounds lovely, spending time down in Omerima. Mm, it's beautiful. Now, where are you going to have your, your glider delivered? Is that going to be back in Australia? No, that's going to come to Europe. Um, I'll pick that up from the factory in April next year and then fly the whole season again in Europe. And uh, who knows after that? I'm not sure where I'll end up uh, the following year. Hmm. Now, with 
SkySight, it's obviously been hugely successful. Do you have other projects uh, underway that uh, will help with uh, your, your gliding competitiveness? Um, not so much. I, I'm fairly closely attached to the company that makes the Dyna 2, the avionic company. Mm-hmm. Um, you might know them from the trailers they make. They make quite nice trailers as well. I think they're called AVG is the brand name on the trailers. Okay. And they're also making the Dyna 3 as well. Uh, and I've been working with them for a couple of years now to try and make sure that both the Dyna 2 and the Dyna 3 are real successes. And I'm hoping to capitalize on that um, with this Dyna 2 that's arriving next year. Now, what made you choose that particular glider? I mean, there's a lot of stuff out there. I mean, I had uh, Ace Yonkers on the on the show a couple of months back, and uh, those gliders are pretty sweet. Yeah, they're definitely beautiful. Um, but uh, I did quite a lot of thinking about what kind of glider I'd like next. And I do like the smaller gliders better. Um, I've never really got along with the kind of 18-meter, uh, 20-meter size gliders as well as I have with the 15-meter gliders. Mm-hmm. Um, and speaking to the manufacturers, um, the key, the thing that they kept on telling me was uh, they built with this next generation of gliders, a glider that was almost as good as the Diana 2 was, um, but without um, perceived negative qualities as a result, um, which kind of sold me really on the Diana 2 that, well, I, I'm quite happy to have the highest performance, even if it comes with some trade-offs. So Matthew, before I let you go, I understand uh, weather cooperating and some insight from SkySight. You're planning to uh, do some ridge soaring this weekend? Yeah, uh, we're heading out to the Long Minge Gliding Club. Um, it's a friend's birthday party out there, a gliding birthday party, so everyone's dragging their gliders up. And um, if hopefully this uh, forecast life-threatening quantities of rain uh, passes past us, we're going to have a good weekend ridge soaring. Well, successful and safe flying, and thank you very much for, uh, for speaking to me on the thermal. Thank you for having me. Matthew Scudder, the man behind SkySight, spoke to me from London, England. marks the 25th anniversary of the first international vintage sailplane meet at Harris Hill in Elmira, New York. It's a great place to fly and the gliders are amazing. Whether you're into wood or glass, there's something there for every pilot. The dates are July 4th to 11th, 2020. Hope to see you there and look for the yellow and blue LK with Canadian registration and say hello. Make sure you stick around because later in the podcast, we'll hear about a mystery glider that was discovered in the rafters of a gliding club north of Toronto. We just heard from Matthew Scudder, the founder of SkySight, talk about the way he uses available computer processing power to crunch weather data and come up with forecasts that will in theory help us achieve the optimum cross-country flight for the given weather conditions. The data that SkySight uses is in most cases free and available for anyone to use. It's part of a massive international system that shares weather data to allow meteorologists to come up with their latest forecasts. Writer Andrew Blum has immersed himself in the history of modern-day weather forecasting and where it's going. Andrew is the author of The Weather Machine, A Journey Inside the Forecast. I reached Andrew Blum in New York City. Andrew, welcome to the Thermal Podcast. Uh, Thanks for having me. So most of us on a daily basis listen to a weather forecast. Uh, Glider pilots, when the season is on, we're checking it a couple times a day for that big flight. What made you want to write about the world of weather forecasting? Yeah, um, I've always written mostly about infrastructure. Uh, I started out writing about kind of architecture and design and technology in cities. 
Uh, and when you write about places like that, um, weather is always kind of the, you know, the, the thing you actually struggle the most to describe. Mm -hmm. And I realized actually after hurricane Sandy, uh, came, you know, hit New York in 2012, that the weather forecast was no longer strictly sort of the science of meteorology, but had become itself this kind of, you know, massive global infrastructure. I began to learn about the weather models and realized that it wasn't just about the supercomputers, but about the entire sort of observation system behind them, the kind of system of systems. And that kind of collision of, you know, my interest in in places and infrastructure and technology uh, with kind of, you know, this sort of longstanding challenge of describing what the weather is like, I really came together to try to try to describe the, this global infrastructure. Now, Hurricane Sandy, they did forecast that quite well, didn't they? They did. It was really eight days ahead um, of the uh, hurricane's landing in October 2012 that there was a pretty clear picture that it was coming. And of mm -hmm. course, you know, at eight days, that's not meteorologists, you know, drawing chart, you know, drawing maps. That's entirely coming from the supercomputer weather models. Uh, and so the fact that 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 capability had kind of you know reached out that far that they these you know, we had legitimate eight day forecasts for extreme events um, was really an improvement that I hadn't noticed and I realized was a story that hadn't been told. Hmm. Now before we get into all the modern stuff, I'm going to take a little step back in time because I loved uh, your description and, and story about this Norwegian chap called Carl Anton Berknes, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. But this guy essentially had the idea of what led to modern weather forecasting, if I understand it correctly. T tell us a little bit about this man and why he's so important. Sure, yeah. So actually, Carl Anton is the father, and Wilhelm is the son, uh, who was the more interested in meteorology. It's actually three, three generations of scientists. Um, the one that I focus most on is the middle generation, Wilhelm, um, who was born, oh, I guess it's the 1860s or 1870s, and died um, in the middle of the 20th century. But um, his what his real insight was that you could use uh, calculations uh, to predict the weather, um, that you could use uh, math and physics rather than merely empirical methods and sort of pattern matching. Mm -hmm. uh, and most importantly, that if you could begin to calculate the weather, uh, you could kind of use the scientific method every single day. And, you know, if you were wrong, uh, tweak your calculations and try again and test your calculations against the entire sort of you know, record of, of, of weather. Uh, and really through that kind of iterative process, turn the weather forecast into a kind of daily science experiment uh, that could be improved with, you know, improvement sort of, you know, eked out month by month, year by year. And sure enough, uh, that process has resulted in the kind of incredible results we have today. But back then, all they had was maybe pressure, temperature, and then a visual look at what the actual weather was doing. And was it then telegraphed around? How did they try and collate this information? Yeah, I mean, it's the kind of this beginning of this global infrastructure that you have weather observations, you know, sent around in, in very particular formats with, you know, um, weather services from different governments negotiating what the best way to communicate those, uh, you know, their, their, those observations are, you know, having to, you know, uh, send them over relatively low bandwidth originally of, of the telegraph and, you know, collating, you know, even a, a small amount of those observations was no small task. In Bjergnes's case, uh, he didn't have nearly enough. Um, he particularly needed observations of the upper air. Um, you know, he couldn't just deal. You know, couldn't just be at the surface. He really needed to 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 be up up at altitude, and he didn't. He had barely had that. He had some some readings from uh, the Zeppelin traffic in the sort of first decade of the 20th century, mm -hmm. um, but for the most part, um, he didn't have enough observations. And of course, he didn't have a computer to calculate those observations into a useful forecast. 
So his equations weren't off by much, but he was missing the other two legs of the stool. He was missing sufficient observations and a way to to crunch one to the other. Right. So that's that's interesting because that leads to my next question because I love that description of the stool with the observations, physics, and computation. How do they actually fit together, I suppose, now in, in 2020? Yeah, um, that's a that's a that's a that's a complex. There are a lot of complicated answers to that. Um, the the kind of the the most important would be this process called data assimilation, uh, and essentially the thing to recognize is that a weather model is not a sort of you know algorithmic meat grinder. It's not about putting the present in, you know, crunching the numbers and the future comes out. On the contrary, a weather model is a kind of ongoing concern. It's an actual simulation, a model of the Earth's atmosphere. And every six hours or 12 hours or you know one hour, however, however often your weather model runs, it's essentially comparing its last forecast to the latest observations and adjusting the models slightly to better match the observed atmosphere. So you can kind of picture these kind of you know two Earths spinning side by side. And data assimilation is that process of comparison, that process of assimilating the observation data into the model. And that's kind of, you know, it's an imper- imperfect metaphor, but it, but that is kind of the, the stool itself. That's oh, it's the, a great visual metaphor when you describe it like that. Yeah. I mean, I just, I, you know, I was so suspicious when I first started this that it was all about the supercomputer. You know, it's never all about the supercomputer. It's always about the kind of human process of improvement, um, you know, you know, inch by inch of, of, of getting our simulated weather to better match our observed weather. Of course, with the special feature that the simulated weather can be run forward faster than time to give right. us these you know, useful things called forecasts that we you know, have very easy access to. But the two things of, of the supercomputers and the amazing data that they can now acquire via satellites and instantaneous observations from around the world. I mean, those two things together are, in, from what I've been reading as well in your book, are what's making all the difference. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, it's it really isn't until the modern satellite era, uh, call it the last 20, 25 years, um, that the weather models really came into their own. And a lot of that is because um, not the geostationary satellites, not the kind of satellite pictures we think of when we think of weather satellites, but the other satellites, the polar orbiters uh, that sort of orbit from north to south and south to north, that cover the entire atmosphere equally. So you have a full global picture, which is essential, especially for longer range, you know, medium and longer range weather forecasts, you know, three, five, eight days. And they also provide more quantitative measurements compared to the, the sort of the visual, you know, the, the visual mm-hmm. observation of the geostationary satellites. And it's those quantitative measurements that have been so helpful for calculating the weather in the weather model. But one of the things that's been really remarkable is that it's not as if, you know, you fly the satellite, the measurements come back and boom, everything works. The process of making sense of the kind of raw data, it took, you know, years, if not a decade to really come into its own. And so you can have a new a satellite with a new instrument and it can take the weather modelers, you know, several years to really assimilate that data into their model in a way that actually results in a better simulation of the atmosphere, which mm-hmm. is to say a better weather forecast. Because in your book, you you mentioned as well that some of the modern satellites are doing things like they're, they're able to read soil moisture. Why why is that kind of thing important? Yeah, I mean, you know, if you the the risk with the weather models is that you focus too much on higher resolution and you end up kind of chasing your own tail. You know, because if you need if you have higher resolution model, you need more supercomputing power, and then the whole thing runs slower, and you know, you really you kind of you somewhat diminishing returns. 
But if you can uh, add more variables, if you can sort of uh, you know bring more into the model that kind of grounds it, um, that helps in particular. Soil moisture uh, on a global scale is one of those variables that is often kind of taken as a, a constant or at least uh, a, a variable that's not updated very frequently. Mm-hmm. The, the satellite that I followed, um, uh, the, called the SMAP satellite, stands for Soil Moisture Active Passive, was really this kind of global plant gauge. You know, it was really getting a global view of soil moisture. And I, I kind of liked it, you know, as a, as a bit of an underdog satellite. Um, you know, the again, the geostationary satellites kind of, t- they t- you know, they get all the attention. You know, they're, you know, each launch is a major event. Um, I really like to tell the story of SMAP because it acts like many other weather satellites. Um, but, uh, you know, I could see it close up and could get a much more granular view of, how these things actually work, you know, what goes into their construction and what goes into their launch and remarkably uh, how often they fail. And actually mm-hmm. uh, SMAP, the active, the A in SMAP, uh, stopped working um, several months after launch. An, ex- um, an expensive uh, mistake or mechanical yeah, breakdown, whatever it was. It's pretty, I mean, even the the current flagship um, American geostationary satellite, the GOES satellites, uh, that also had a failure of an instrument that has kind of been corrected basically with software. Um, you know, they say 97% of its initial capability, um, but it kind of, you know, you know, it hides the fact that these are incredibly complex instruments that particularly in the U.S., uh, we don't seem to be able to build them perfectly. It's one reason, actually, for the weather satellites. I focused on the mm-hmm. European satellite agency, UMETSAT, uh, because they do seem... Uh, to have a bit better quality control and be a bit more competent and be a bit more coherent in the way they design, uh, develop, and launch, and then operate these weather satellites. Now, that gets back to the, the bigger picture of all these satellites. They're put up by, by nation states, but all the data is generally shared freely amongst nation states. Is that still working out well in today's modern era? Uh, it's an absolutely crucial question at the moment. Um, it still is working very well. You know, it's a kind of golden age of weather forecasting. Um, because of this, you know, intense, you know, data sharing among among so many nations, and with it, particularly among rich nations sharing data with each other, who the nations that fly weather satellites are also the nations that run weather models, and then allowing the outputs of those models to be more or less freely accessible to the world. The risk at the moment is with the rise of both private weather satellites, mm-hmm. um, private satellites, generally speaking. Um, and then as well, sort of brand new with private weather models. Uh, it's long been the assumption that only governments are going to run weather models. That's no longer the case. You know, the sort of, you know, uh, availability of you know major supercomputing as well as the greater financial stakes right. uh, with um, with climate change and more extreme weather um, and more financial losses from that extreme weather have kind of changed the financial proposition that we're beginning to see private weather models uh, and private weather satellites. And the risk is that if you end up with, for example, the U.S. government, uh, the current administration is very interested in privatizing as much as possible. Uh, and so if you have private weather data, then uh, there's the risk that the sort of spigot is turned off and mm-hmm. everybody stops sharing uh, this information that has essentially been freely shared for 150 years. And is that a serious risk in, in your opinion? Uh, it's definitely moving in that mm-hmm. direction. Wow. Um, you know, it hasn't happened yet. Um, but, uh, you know, these are challenging times in the United States at the moment, um, and sort of nothing's off the table. Um, right. and it was been quite clear from, uh, NOAA and the National Weather Service 
that they do want to explore uh, private data more. Mm. And it's not clear they fully recognize how global weather data is. Um, you know, in a, and with the notion that if you stopped sharing, you know, you couldn't have more than like a three-day weather forecast with only U.S. data. It just right. wouldn't work. Um, now, what, just to interrupt for a second, when yeah. we talk about these private corporations, one of the things in your book that also caught my attention was your suggestion that, you know, everybody's smartphone could be turned into its own little weather station and, and data center for, for the weather, and companies like Google would be able to access that and not share it. Is that something that we we're looking at into the future? Well, the 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 um the sharing of barometric data from our smartphones is already happening. Actually, I just um I hadn't opened my Weather Channel app on my phone uh, in a while, and it asked me again to confirm that I'm willing to share the barometric data from my phone <laughs> uh, up to the Weather Channel. Right. The, um, the Weather Channel is owned is run by the Weather Company, uh, which is an IBM company, so it's IBM's data now. Uh, and um, so that's that's happening. It's completely happening. Uh, you know, again, as with so many of these things, um, you know, we they are sort of obscured by a lot of complexity. Um, mm -hmm. The difference, I think, the you know, the really stark difference is that for essentially the entire modern history of meteorology, it has been something that's done by governments uh, in the service of their people. And the culture of meteorology has been international, has been collaborative. Even during the Cold War, there's a big effort on that collaboration. And now... Um, you know, we have incredible capabilities with new weather forecasting, uh, and we also have very high stakes uh, with new weather. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it, you know, there, and we have a world, of course, where so much is divided between the haves and the have-nots. Uh, and the sort of implication that people um, will happily pay more for better weather forecasts, creating a kind of two-tiered system where weather for, the weather forecast has always been a public good um, seems quite self-evident. Yeah, yeah. Now, in your book, you describe this this cooperation between governments at the moment as sort of the last bastion of international cooperation. How is this going to play into the, the climate emergency that we find ourselves in right now? Do you think that's going to make governments realize how important it is to keep it free? Or, or what do you think is going to happen? I, I think we, my hope is that we will realize what we have to lose. Mm -hmm. You know, we'll appreciate what we have to lose before we actually lose it. Um, it's it's a, it's a challenge, though, because, um, you know, clearly there is a role for private forecasters and kind of what they call value added, mm -hmm. um, you know, where you have apps. I know you're talking to, to the, uh, other folks in this episode, even where you, you, know, you have apps that offer a specific read or sp sort of a specific interpretation of the existing public data. And obviously, there's a sort of benefit to that, and and surely I don't see anything wrong with um with charging for that. The risk, I think, is if the 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 basic system of protecting life and property, mm -hmm. uh, which is the sort of generally speaking the mission of National Weather Services, if that is um, begins to be split, um, and uh, and as well as if you have an erosion of the sort of public global weather forecasting system, in favor of the kind of alternative private system um, that's run. IBM, for example, is now running its own global weather model. IBM is a you know it's a big uh, you know <laughs> you know a, a company with a long history of uh, of it, it knows how to acknowledge its public good. You know it's mm -hmm. not a it's not a kind of aggressive startup, and they actually talk a very good game about the ways in which uh, the ways in which their model can can help people all over the world and how they can kind of moderate that. And you know they're they're pretty good at that. You know they they I sort of take have a lot of stock in uh, in the way that that IBM serves both public and private customers mm -hmm. in different ways. Right. But there are other more aggressive startups that um, that very much make the case um, that data is a competitive advantage. I suppose IBM makes that case as well. 
Um, but you know, and, and that you know begins to um you know begin to see you know the the sort of extra day warning on a hurricane evacuation, for example. Yeah, yeah, which um, you've seen from personal experience. Well, at the moment, that data is still you know you know we we don't you know I suppose there are people who get that data ahead of time, um, who pay more for that interpretation, but we still the sort of premier system is still the public system. Right. And so the question would be, you know, for extreme events, you know, for events that, that really can be very harmful for people, um, do we, uh, you know, do does this private system, uh, you know, lead to folks, you know, willing to pay for it, get a jump on those kinds of safety issues? Um, or is our public system eroded because we stop supporting it and instead rely uh, on a sort of narrower distribution of private data? Right. Now, that's all very important, of course, for our general health and welfare of, of nations and cities and people around the world. But one of the reasons I'm talking to you is that of a, of a glider pilot. And I can tell you from personal experience, the weather forecasts have improved dramatically over the last 20 years or so. Yeah. Your book is called The Weather Machine. What is the weather machine of the future going to look like? Take me, tw take me 20 years into the future. Yeah, well, it's easy to go twenty years into the future because you can see uh, how far we've how far we've come in twenty years. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, today is a great example. Uh, it's the um, we're talking the first couple of days in December, and there's this big winter storm coming the east coast. And going back five or six days, the forecast was for at least in New York City, you know, rain to snow to rain to snow from Sunday morning until Monday afternoon. <laughs> You know, and and that's that that's been a pretty good forecast. You know, it's for a long time out. There's it's been clear there there will be a storm with impacts. Right. But it'd be very interesting to begin to sort of trust to both have the kind of higher resolution and kind of time and space to know that you know the storm bands are going to come at four o'clock, not at two o'clock. Um, you know, and and I we we have the beginnings of that. Um, but we don't. You know, but we could always use more precision, and we could always use, of course, more more accuracy, which is to say a, a higher degree of confidence in the forecast. Um, so you, I'm thinking actually even yesterday and today, the, the, you know, I'm wondering what the, uh, how the kind of how granular, for example, the airlines have been able to get by saying, oh, from, you know, 7 a.m. to 10 a.m. we'll have no problem. But at 10, 15, you know, the snow's really going to kick in at JFK and all hell's going to break loose. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, and it's that, it's, it's that kind of decision making, you know, it's, that really makes a difference. And I think when we talk about the future, that's going to be one of the the the, the major um, the major changes, is we're going to because the forecast gets so much better in a technical sense, we'll be more comfortable um, and be more confident in making decisions based on that forecast. So, on a personal level, for you, after writing this book and doing so much research and visiting all these places, do you trust weather forecasts now more than? When you started writing this, uh, well, I will say I, I get more annoyed when I forget to bring an umbrella. There's <laughs> <laughs> nothing, nothing, nothing worse than kind of ignoring the forecast. That's actually pretty good. Um, yeah, I mean, I joked, uh, you know, I was for my daughter's softball team. You know, is it going to start raining, you know, Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m.? You know, definitely it's going to start raining at 9 a.m. and the game's going to be canceled, and we should all plan on that. Uh, you know, thing, <laughs> things like that that are. Again, it really comes down to the decisions you can make based on the forecast. Right, right, right. right. Um, and so, so, but often, you know, often the forecast says maybe, you know, and and so you have to kind of accept the fact that that maybe is the best forecast we're going to get. Uh, it's very different from yes, it's going to rain or snow, or no, it's definitely not. Uh, but the maybe itself can help us make a decision, or at least postpone a decision until until the moment. But the modern day weather machine, the one that we have right now. Um, it really is a remarkable 
remarkable forecasting machine compared to what it was just a few decades ago. And it it's I'm impressed by it every time. Yeah. Now, are you more attentive to the kind of nuances of winds? You know, at what point is a forecast useful for you? Do you need it five days out so you can kind of make you know make a plan to go up, or is it really about the kind of small scale features? You know, you know, a few hours before. Well, for glider pilots, we we generally start looking a few days out, and then we hope that the model keeps recognizing what we want and it keeps heading in that right direction and then people will start taking days off and you know constantly checking the weather and of course the closer you get the more detail you're going to get and the more assured you are going to be of the forecast but it's it's remarkable you know I was talking to earlier as I mentioned to Matthew Scudder and his uh, application SkySight it is remarkable the difference forecasting tools are making now for what we do here in the uh, in the gliding world yeah, no, absolutely. And, and what a, you know, what a thing to be able to say, okay, I better take, uh, you know, make the decision on Monday to take Thursday off because, you know, the forecast, the, the weather's going to be right yeah. when um 10 years ago, 20 years ago, that would have not been as confident. Yeah. Andrew, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Um, next time you're in Toronto, make sure you, uh, you give me a call and uh, in the summer, we'll go for a, for a flight over uh, Southwest Ontario. Oh, it's very tempting. Very tempting. Thanks very much for your interest. I appreciate it. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Andrew Blum spoke to me from New York City. His latest book, The Weather Machine, is available at fine booksellers everywhere. This month on Gliding Club Confidential, we go to the Netherlands, a small country with a significant number of gliding clubs and a membership that's passionate about the sport. Simon van den Ankel, or Flying Simon, is a member of Zweeflicht Club Dalen, or the Dalen Gliding Club, and I've reached him in Delft, the Netherlands. So Simon, talk to me about Zweeflicht Club Dalen, and uh, where is it located? Very well, your, your, your Dutch pronunciation is, uh, is still very good. Uh, so uh, Zweeflicht Club Dalen, it's the club I've been flying for the past nine years, if I'm correct. Um, really a beautiful club, a very diverse club. It is located on Vliegbasis Delen or Airbase or Delen. Uh, it's a sort of a sleeping airbase. So they only fly, uh, fly there with helicopters um, on weekdays and in the, in the weekend days we can fly, uh, we can fly there. And it's um, located at probably the, most, the best spot in the Netherlands for, uh, for gliding. So it's a, um, a national center, uh, or it's a, sorry, it's a national park uh, called the Hoge Veluwe. Uh, and although the Netherlands is as flat as a pancake, uh, it's 40 meters higher than uh, than the rest of the Netherlands is. So um, thermals will always start uh, at the Hoge Veluwe, and uh, and so it's great gliding there. So the the conditions are we just talking thermals of 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 course nothing else, right? It's it's flat. It's Holland. It's completely flat. So uh, so for for ridge for wave, we always have to travel to another country. Uh, but uh, yeah, the, the Netherlands is actually as flat as a pancake. So how high can you get uh, under uh, on a good day? So on a good day, uh, I guess we're normally about fifteen hundred meters uh, is our is our average cloud base. I would say uh, on gray days we can go over two thousand, uh, but we have uh, some troubles with with skipple as well. So we can only go up to either flight level sixty five or uh, flight level ninety five. So Schiphol is uh, the the big airport in Holland, the big international yeah. airport. So we're talking airspace Indeed. issues. Yeah. Talk to me about the airfield itself and what kind of runways are they paved? Is it grass? What do you have? So we have a two grass runways. Uh, so only uh, we either start in the northerly direction or in the southerly uh, direction. 
but it's a huge airfield. So because they, they practice there with um, the, with the helicopters, it's it's still huge. So we have uh, pretty much all space. Uh, but the airfield has has a great story because it um, it was built by the Germans uh, back in uh, in World War Two, and um, they didn't want the uh, the British and and uh, the Allied forces to to see that it it was a German airfield. So all the bunkers that are made on, on the terrain they look like um, they look like farmhouses, but then if you step inside them, they have a a one meter thick wall, so they're actually just bunkers. Um, so the whole airfield is sort of disguised as being a, a Dutch village. One great story that, that we have at Dele is that um, the Germans painted the airfield once. So they painted all these craters on the, on the runway so that it would look as if it was bombed by, by the Brits. So when they flew over, it actually looked as a, as a bombed airfield. Uh, but uh, it was totally fine and they could still fly from the airfield. So it took, uh, I, I think it gave them uh, some time before the Brits discovered it. But um, yeah, it was a, a neat little trick from the Germans. And this also isn't too far from where a lot of those gliders landed for Operation Market Garden in the, the battle for the, the bridges over the Rhine. Yeah, it's actually very close. So um, uh, some of the, the veterans uh, come back to, to Arnhem each year and they're also flown around in, uh, in a few of the gliders. Huh, cool. Now your club, uh, what kind of launching method do you have? So we usually fly with winch, uh, but we have aerato uh, possibilities as well. We have a three-kilometer runway, so sometimes we do uh, we do aerotos as well. Wow, three-kilometer runway! So you must get pretty decent uh, winch heights. Uh, we get decent heights. I think last weekend they even went up to one thousand meters from the winch. Wow! And this this winch itself is it is it a single drum winch or how many cables? It has four cables. Yeah, sort of pretty much the standard in in the Netherlands, I would say. So talk to me about the fleet uh, that you have. Yeah, so we have a, a lovely ASK-13 to start off with. It's not really our training aircraft anymore, but uh, sometimes we make some, some fun flights on it. It's in, uh, it's in yellow. Um, and then we have the ASK-21. So our trainer aircraft, we make your first starts on. Uh, an ASK-23, so the solo aircraft. And then we get into the uh, sort of the competition gliders. We have an LS-4, a Discus 2B, which is I think my, my personal favorite. Uh, we have an ASW-28 with 80-meter span and uh, the pride of our club, a Geodiscus XLT. Right. Nice gliders. All very nice gliders. How Indeed. big is your club? How many members and what are the annual fees like? Is it is it uh, affordable to fly there? Yeah, we have uh, about a bit more than 70 members. And with us, it costs about 800 euros a year to, to fly. Uh, but what is nice in our club is that, you, uh, that everything is included. So... Also, if you take a glider to a different airfield, then you don't pay any extra fees. So that's quite nice. Nice, nice. Now, can uh, if a visiting pilot, like, uh, for example, a Canadian pilot were to show up and try and go for a flight, how would that work out? Well, if, if you show up, then I'll, I'll, definitely, uh, I'll definitely fly with you. Uh, it is a bit more difficult with us, though, because it's an airbase. Mm -hmm. So you always have to, uh, uh, to say to our to military that you're coming to fly. Right. Uh, but it's definitely possible, yeah. So Simon, finally, what's the best thing about your gliding club? Well, that's a good question, um, but I think it's probably how diverse our club is. So you already see that in our fleet, that it's quite balanced. Um, but I would say there's, there's really a place for everyone. So there are some people who uh, are competition pilots or, or want to be world champion one day, but there are also people who just want to have a fun flight, uh, just see uh, beautiful Netherlands from, uh, from the air and, uh, and think that is enough. 
So um, I think we have people from all ages uh, with all kinds of motivations to fly. And I think that's the, the best thing of our club. Excellent. Well, Simon, thank you very much for talking to me about uh, Fleet Club Dela. And uh, I very hope good. you visit sometime. Yes, let's make it happen. Okay, cheers. Take care. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Simon van den Enkel spoke to me from Delft, the Netherlands. Simon is a member of Zweeflieg Club Delen. If you want to find out more about this club, go to www.zcdeelen.nl. That's www.zulu charlie delta echo echo lima echo november dot november lima. Now a quick note about our sponsor, Fox One Corporation, the place to go for all your gliding avionics, instrumentation, and software needs. Dave Springford is the man behind Fox One Corp. He's a world-class competition pilot and knows what he's talking about. So get in touch with him at foxonecorp.com and talk to him about your gliding needs. That's foxonecorp, all one word, dot com. Many of us have seen them abandoned and rotting away in old trailers, stuffed in a corner at the back of a hangar, suspended from a hangar ceiling, or hidden in the rafters, forlorn gliders that have been collecting dust for decades. Garfield Ingram noticed a mystery glider at his club, York Soaring, which is about two hours northwest of Toronto. I've reached Garfield at his office in Toronto. Hey Garfield, uh, welcome to the Thermal Podcast. Thank you very much, it's great to be here. So this mystery glider, it's intriguing. Let's start from the beginning. What piqued your interest in this, uh, you know, pile of old wood that was uh, in top of the, on top of the rafters in your hangar? Well, I've always had an interest in military history and in aviation history and um, just a love of airplanes. And the, the, the glider had come to our club uh, a million years ago uh, when we absorbed another club that came from, uh, from Tottenham. It was Pioneer Soaring. And they brought uh, their fleet over, which included 233s. So I was able to see, see one of those for the first time, and we've been using them ever since. Uh, but part of, the, um, part of the assets of that club was this, this old primary glider. And it was uncovered by, uh, didn't have any fabric on it, and it was bits and pieces. And it had been hanging in their ceiling for a number of years, and they brought it over, and then we hung it in our ceiling. So uh, when I was a kid, um, I actually took it home to my apartment, uh, got it, I don't know how I did it, got it, got it shipped, I was in high school. And um, I thought it'd be great to restore it, but I quickly learned that you need money and you need space. And, and my, my space was there as a favor. So I was kind of running out and I certainly didn't have any money as a high school student. So, um, so that was it. It came back to York soaring and then it hung up in the ceiling. So, um, but it, so it's always been of interest, but it, it was pretty well forgotten there for, for, for decades. And we had a, um, um, a bad day at the club as far as weather goes, so it just wasn't flyable. And we had, uh, an air cadet camp from Hong Kong. And I said, Hey guys, let's, let's have some fun. So we, we went over to the the garage where it's where it's hanging and uh we took it down and i thought let's reassemble it and let me take a really really good look, close look at the at the airframe and see if there's any little clues as to what it was or what it is so that's kind of how so that d- all describe started. it to me what is what does it sort of look like this this what's left of this glider or what you know well yeah it's um you've got a pretty knowledgeable um 
uh, audience there with, as as glider pilots. But if they don't know, a, uh, a primary glider is basically a uh, an A-frame truss made out of wood, and then it's got wood wings. So the typical spar, ribs, that sort of thing, all made out of wood. So when you fly it, you're sitting out in the open, and you you have a seat and and air. That's it. The um, but a curious thing that was part of this is are these metal booms, and uh, I knew that they were part of the tail, and um, so the, so the, basically there's there's the skeleton wings, the skeleton tail, and then this this A-frame truss, which is essentially the fuselage. So the, it was all taken apart in pieces. So um, so I I I sort of did a Google search. You know, it's great. You know, you find pictures there. So that's what it looks like. Um, um, and I sent pictures to a museum in, in Lasham, England, and they've been great. And they identified it right away. They said it's a Slings VT3, and there are none other in the there are no other ones in the world that they know of. Really? So this is the only. So you've identified. You now know it's a, a Slings VT3, and it's the only one in the world. That's correct. Yeah, it, which was really exciting. It, it suddenly. Suddenly, it became more exciting. I know that there are a number of primary gliders around. In fact, you can go on YouTube and see people um, who have restored these things that are actually flying them. Um, but this this particular version is uh, was actually designed. The tail was designed by uh, Wolf Hearth, if I have the name right. Right. And, um, the standard primary glider that was used. During World War II, by 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 Germany was the SG-38, and that that version really got proliferated all over the world. It's a very familiar kind of aircraft. Um, Hearth wanted to, I guess, lighten the the structure or something, and dispense with the um, the back part of this of this truss, and replaced it with these metal tail booms. So it's very distinctive, and there's basically two V's that go back and support the tail. Hmm. Um, much like uh, an airplane from World War One, one of the old pusher aircraft, right. very similar kind of thing. So that made it distinct, and um, and lo and behold, we actually managed the 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 booms of this thing were actually uh, gone. Um, and <laughs> I, I had another young fellow from the club. We went around, and we just went it in every nook and cranny, and we found them. In another port part of the glider club, we found the booms had been stored. Away up on the up on up on a roof. So you've got a complete glider then. Pretty well. There's a few things missing. Like when I when I was a kid and I took it back to my apartment way back when, there was um, everything was there. What's missing now is the rudder, uh, the vertical stabilizer, the seat, the stick, and the rudder bar. So um, those are fairly important. I have a feeling they're probably hanging on somebody's basement wall, and uh, if they are. Um, if you're hearing this podcast, please bring them back. No question is asked. So at your gliding club, some of the old guys, they didn't know the history or the story behind this glider? There's there's no knowledge? Yeah, nobody really knows um, the history of it. Now, mind you, I'm just beginning my process, and one of the things that I have to do is go on our own forum and put the question out, does anybody know? where the extra parts might be and does anybody have any extra information now is so there... i was really excited to sorry, i was really excited about your podcast you know it's a great way to get to communicate uh right well it's a mystery but were there registration marks on the aircraft or anything for you to be able to to source out some more knowledge about this thing 
there was uh, no because the, 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 the wings everything had been stripped of fabric so it was just a skeleton but that one of the reasons why I took it down was that um, I, I know from aircraft restoration if you want to find out about the airplane you've got to look for a data plate a serial number that's been stamped somewhere mm-hmm. and um, a young lady named Molly up at our club uh, one of our in, uh, instructors um, looked at it carefully and she discovered the uh, serial number that was penciled on one of the ribs. Oh yeah. And great, you know that was the only identifier that there there was, and that is I I sent that a photograph of that to the folks in in Lasham, England, and uh, they said that yes, that's in fact in the block of aircraft that were produced in in England. Hmm. Um, but it led to another mystery in that I looked at very carefully at the bolts, like there are bolts that are holding on brackets and things. And the heads of them are marked with Stelco, um, S-T-E-L-C-O, which is a Canadian steel company based right. in Hamilton. So, was it a kit well, maybe that was bought and ma- and made in Canada? I don't know. And then I, I started to look even closer, and I put the wings side by side, and I started thinking, oh, these are kind of slightly different. And there were a couple little differences to it. Somebody had installed compression struts into one of the wings, just these metal tubes that they kind of stuck between the two spars. And then there were the, the little plywood brackets and things like strengtheners that they put in at joints. A couple of them were slightly different. Um, and then one wing was also varnished and the other wing wasn't varnished. So I thought, hmm, this ain't a match set. These, these are from two different aircraft or one was original, the other one was rebuilt. Right, so, Dam- maybe damaged or something. All these yeah, who knows? Because people were always crashing the, the things. So, yeah, it just kept, the more questions I had, I'd look carefully, and it would pop up more questions. It's all part of the fun. So, what do we know right now? It's a Slingsbeat primary glider. We don't know how, how it arrived in Canada. We we what 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 do you know? Have you found out anything more about its history here? Its history? No, not not at all. I know it belonged to Pioneer Soaring. So, Pioneer Soaring was northeast of Toronto. So. Um, I, I looked into um, the Gatineau Glide, Gliding Club because that was one of the oldest clubs in Canada, and they have uh, somebody had done a history of of the Gatineau Gliding Club, and lo and behold, they had actually flown uh, a T three primary glider there. So it's logical that that it came from Ottawa to to uh, northeast of Toronto, but I haven't confirmed that. I've been trying to get a hold of somebody from from Gatineau, but um, you know, with with email protections and all that, it's hard to sort of get in touch with a real person there. So, hopefully, we can here reach out to somebody to Gatineau who can contact me. Well, there so have to be pictures out there and other things. So, uh, I'm uh, this is a real mystery where to, where it all came from. This glider, for sure. And then another uh, piece of the mystery uh, just popped up again. I was doing a, a Google search and and I came across a um, uh, some photographs on the web put up by a fellow named Gary Hebbard in Newfoundland. The photograph shows a T3 primary glider that was shipped to Newfoundland. They had just put it together and they're about to fly it. And I think this was back in the 1920s, 1920s or 30s. So this may, 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 may uh, have actually been the first glider in Canada, if it's in fact the same one. So I'm wondering if if this is the glider that maybe it ended up in Ottawa, and then maybe it came to Via our Newfoundland to New York Soaring. Yeah, yeah. So 
we're, I'm trying to connect the dots here, and um, there's tantalizing little hints here and there, and I'm trying to put it together. So I'm I'm waiting. The fellow um, um, Gary Hebbard in Newfoundland apparently his father flew it, and I believe he's passed away now, but he does have some information. So. Um, yeah, I used to belong to the, the. They had one. It was called the um, the Newfoundland Aero Club. Hmm. Um, probably doesn't even exist anymore. And um, who knows? It's it, it is a it's, it, it it is the same type of glider. So so before I, before I let you go, what are the plans, or do you have any plans yet for the for the aircraft? Is it a potential rebuild? Or are you going to bring it to static display? What, what are you guys going to do with it? I'm open. I, I'm. I'm right now. I'm just trying to find information, find out what it is, and I'm going to present to the board of York Soaring um, some possibilities of what they they can do with it because you know it's an asset of York Soaring and and it'll be their decision. So um, so we're looking for ideas about about what to do. The wood is quite fragile. I don't think it could fly again. Uh, but it would be a great restoration project. So, you know, I would love to, love it if we can keep it here in Canada. I would love it if we can restore it. I, I don't like the idea of shipping our Canadian history abroad. It's um, I'd rather see it here. It's uh, it's an important airplane. It's, Agreed. Uh, it, if it wasn't, in fact, the first glider in Canada or one of the first, golly, we've got a we've got a wonderful asset here. Well, Garfield, uh, thank you for telling us about this this mysterious barn find. And uh, we'll touch base with you at some point, maybe next year, once you've learned a little bit more. And uh, hopefully some of our listeners uh, in this part of the world will be able to give you some insight. So thanks again, and I'll be posting some pictures on the Facebook site uh, of the Thermal Podcast and maybe other people will have an idea. So thanks again and take care. Super, thank you very much. Garfield Ingram is a member of the York Gliding Club in Ontario. He spoke to me from Toronto. That's it for episode number seven of The Thermal. I will be back again in early January 2020 with another show that will include an interview with Amy Jo Randles, also known as Pilot with a Paintbrush. We'll also have a remarkable story from the 1950s about a flight that started in central England, went across the channel and wound up in Holland. At the moment, The Thermal Podcast has close to 2,000 downloads per month. I'm hoping to grow that number to over 3,000 by episode number 12. Tell your friends and show your mother how to download as well. Finally, if you have any good interview ideas, please let me know. I can be reached at The Thermal Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. That's The Thermal Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for centering The Thermal Podcast. See you next time. I'm Harry Tenkate. Fly safe.